Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Listen, I, I, I knew going into this series of messages, obviously what the title of the series was, I did not know that it would feel like the the series that was on television in the early 2000s called 24, okay? Uh, but it is so much like that. Kiefer Sutherland, maybe, anybody watch 24 when it came out? All right, a handful, a good, a good maybe a half of you guys. Uh, okay, it's, it's one of those that if you watch it today, you'd probably be unimpressed with it. But in the 2000s, it was incredible. It was like one of those, those cliffhangers. You'd watch it and you'd wait for the next week because you had to wait a week. You couldn't binge watch it, okay? It was before Netflix or anything like that. You had, to, uh, you had to watch it and then wait for next week and anticipate it. But the entire eight-episode series was all a story about what happened in a 24-hour period of time. And in that 24-hour period of time, then that story is being told and it had crime and it had drama and it had suspense and it had good guys and it had bad guys. And each of those series, each of those series, that each series had about six to eight episodes. And then I look at our series. We're in six messages in a 24 hour window that we're looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus's life on earth before his death, burial and resurrection. And as he is finishing up his ministry and his life, we are literally sitting on the edge of our seats, waiting for the next episode. Who's going to be the next figure? Who's going to be the next person in the story? There's life, there's death, there's a global impact, as there was on 24. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And I tell you, where you land with Jesus, and the whole thing, we're looking at people who had different, diverse views on Jesus. They weren't always aligned. They didn't fully embrace Jesus, just like the people in our worlds, the people that we live and breathe and do life with and work with and our kids are on teams with. The people have different views of Jesus. So who is Jesus and what do you believe about Jesus? And I will say this, said it every week, that the most important decision that you will make in your life is what you believe about Jesus. And then right behind that, how what you believe about Jesus impacts your life as you live it out. If we don't get that one straight, everything else falls apart. So what is it? Who is it that Jesus is to you? And again, we've kind of been looking at a timeline in these last 24 hours. We started with Judas. Judas is the story that, again, we all kind of, he's infamous. He's the betrayer. He's the guy who kisses Jesus. Uh, really, when he betrays him, yeah, Jesus calls him a friend. So this, this, this dichotomy of a relationship, this, this brokenness that's going on inside of this. And yet, yet, after Judas betrays Jesus, he has this incredible sense of remorse. And Judas is left or takes it upon himself to fix his own brokenness, to fix his own shame. And he threw the money back, and he tried to walk away from it. He tried to rewind and reverse the storyline. But the reality is the remorse was setting in. And the longer he dealt with that remorse, the deeper it sunk into his soul. And with hours later, he takes his own life. Here's the reality about remorse. If you live only with remorse, it will shame you into an early grave. 
for some, literally. God doesn't want us to live with remorse. Remorse should lead to repentance. That's what happened with Peter. Repentance should lead to restoration. Restoration should lead to refreshment. And literally, that's what the Bible points to in Acts chapter 3, when he tells us to repent and turn back to God, that there would be times of refreshing that would come. So as we walk through life and we face remorse, yes, remorse should lead to repentance, which should lead to restoration, which should lead to that refreshing relationship with God and getting free of that guilt and that shame. Judas didn't do that. You go on in the story. Judas betrays him over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest, leads the Sanhedrin, about 70 different men that were in power position. And Jesus was getting more accolades than Caiaphas. In fact, I think, in my opinion, that Caiaphas was really suffering from FOMO, fear of missing out, because what Judas and what Jesus was getting was all the praise. Hosanna, Hosanna, laying down palm branches, treating him like a king, saying, save us, save us, save us. That's what the people of Israel were saying. Caiaphas watching this. He said, hey, I'm the high priest. What are you doing? He said, why do I get all that? I mean, he crucifies him because of blasphemy. That's the smoke and mirrors. Because he goes to Pilate next. Pilate's the next guy who comes on the scene. Pilate sees what the real motive inside the heart of, of Caiaphas was. And it wasn't he was protecting the doctrine. It wasn't that he was watching against blasphemy. Caiaphas said, it was, Pilate says this of Caiaphas. He says this in Mark, Mark 15, 10. He, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. It wasn't because he was guarding doctrine. It wasn't because he was protecting against blasphemy. It was because he was jealous. And again, Caiaphas, that's the position that he's in. He's leading the religious leaders that way. They do this kangaroo court in the middle of the night, and they put Jesus in a dungeon till the next morning, and then they take him on to Pilate. As they get to Pilate, they're standing before Pilate the first time. Pilate says, you're innocent, sends him on to Herod. Herod doesn't really have any kind of ruling of guilt or innocence on him. In fact, he just wants him to perform some miracles to entertain him. And then he sends him back to Pilate again. So he goes back a second time to Pilate. And so you've got this back and forth. And never did a Roman official ever rule that Jesus was guilty of anything. He was completely innocent. I want to read to you the verses in chronological order. And I want you to notice the number of times that Jesus is declared innocent. The very first time he runs into Pilate in John 18, he says, I find no guilt in him. Then he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back. And then he goes under his, I guess you call it his third trial. First one with Pilate, second one with Herod. Now he comes back to the Pilate again. He says, you brought me this man who who, who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find any guilt of any of your charges against him. He's completely exonerated, completely innocent, no fault in him. Goes on, there's even Pilate's wife speaks up, says, hey, he's innocent. He's a righteous man. Goes on again. Another kind of verdict is, is rendered and Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. At that point, Pilate could have set him free. If you heard what Rick and Jane read earlier, to satisfy the crowd. See, Brett said it well last week. 
really, Pilate doesn't want to deal with the real question about Jesus. Even though Jesus is the answer to lie, he really doesn't want to deal with this. He's trying to back out. I don't find any guilty. But because of the crowd, you come to the last verse. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. For again, I find no guilt in him. Now, how many times do you have to stand trial, be found innocent before you finally innocent? In America, it's called double jeopardy if you're tried for the same crime and you've been found innocent the one time. He's been on trial three times, no less, in a Roman court. And even at the end, you find, I find no guilt in him. And then what does he do? He does this kind of weak need, like the backbone of a wet noodle. He says this, you can crucify him. But he's innocent. You can crucify him. But he's innocent. How is that? Where's the where's that play into it? Let's enter another character, Barabbas. There's something that happened. There's a loophole in the law. It's not in the Jewish law. We don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. It has to be a practice that was practiced in the, under the Roman law. And there are other examples of this in extra biblical writings that at times to win favor with the people, and that's clearly what Pilate was about, he, what you can do is you can set a prisoner free, do a prisoner swap, anything like that to kind of win favor with the people. And because it's Passover week, hey, let me do you a solid and we're going to set somebody free. Who do you want to set free? Jesus, your king? Or Barabbas. Barabbas was a was a was a well-known criminal. We'll see in that in a few moments. You would have thought in any given moment of any given day, the crowd would have said in a heartbeat, give us Jesus, not Barabbas. We don't want him running the streets. But they didn't. They said, give us Barabbas. Now I just want you to hang on to that. Because what happens in this whole thing? Pilate is in this loophole setting Barabbas free. Barabbas is the guilty one, and he goes free. Jesus is the innocent one. Three different verdicts, and he goes to the cross. What is that? Trading places? Prisoner swap? There's nothing just about that. There's nothing just about the cross. There's nothing right about the cross, but that's just it. Jesus goes to the cross, the innocent one. Barabbas goes free, the guilty one. Now, let me just tell you this. This may be, may be a shocker to you. I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. We're Barabbas. We're the guilty ones. We live in this world, and we, we, do, we do things wrong. We think things wrong. We feel things wrong. We emote things wrong. We say things wrong. We... We make bad decisions. We live out of our passions and our desires. We do that all the time. But at the same time, how is it that I can be in a relationship with God? It's not possible. Outside of the brokenness being fixed, Barabbas will look at Jesus and he will see him as his escape. His escape from his prison cell. His escape from to a better life. A life of freedom. But that's not what Jesus is. He's not your escape. He's not your therapist. He's not your good healer. He's not your your teacher only. Jesus is your substitute. He's the substitute that takes our place so that we can have a new life forever. He's more than just an escape. He is our substitute. He steps in our 
place. We are Barabbas, you're Barabbas, and let's just live in that tension for a moment. Because if you were to understand the realities, if we were to understand the realities at, at, at play here in this story, we need to see two realities of this trading places, the, the innocent for the guilty, the guilty going innocent, uh, be, be, being set free. How do, how do we get there? Well, one is we got to understand this, that I have a need I can't fix. You have a need you can't fix. You can't be good enough. You can't be baptized enough. You can be baptized in every river, spring, wherever, till whatever comes home. You can join every other church in town. That's not going to get it there because here's the problem. And I said it a few weeks ago, and we just all got to wake up to it. One of these days, you got to wake up to it. Here it is. Access is denied on God. Access denied. We read this a few weeks ago. We've been separated because of our iniquities. We've been, God hides his face from us. He doesn't hear us. We read, read this uh, back in our Ephesians series that we're dead in our trespasses. That's another word for sins. That's another word for iniquities in which we walked following in the course of this world. We just, we live like the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We talked about that in our spiritual warfare series. This is how we live. We function this way as children of wrath by our very nature. Now, listen, I'm not trying to send you into the deep depression today, so hang with me on this. But we've got to go to the real bad news so that we can understand the good news so that we can walk in the new life. And understanding the darkness of the reality is I have a problem I can't fix. You have a problem you can't fix. That's a problem. Now, Satan is going to do two lies on you. One, he's going to tell you, I don't need to be saved. I don't need a help. I don't need a savior. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need. I'm good enough. I can muster this up myself. I can do good enough myself in reality. Can you? Listen, I wouldn't trust my best 24 hours to get me to heaven. Because in that 24 hours, I promise you, I had a bad attitude. I said something. I thought something. I, I, I had passion for something that was not right. I wouldn't trust my best 24 hours. I'm going to borrow from Todd Aaron, who was here a few uh, weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now. And he said, good people don't go. Uh, good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. I think that's what most people believe. Good people go to heaven. The problem is, is that there aren't good people. I'm not saying that there's not better people than other people. But good people on God's standard of goodness? Uh-uh. This is what Romans says. Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 10 and 12, he says, None is righteous, not even one. Not, none understands. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have all become worthless. No, no one does good, not even one. we got to wake up to the reality that I have a problem. I can't fix my problem. I need help. And until I wake up to the reality that I need a Savior. This is what Paul, Jesus said in his very first longest sermon in the Bible. He says, God, bless, God blesses those who are poor and realize they need, there's a need for him. There's a lot of people who don't really feel like they need Jesus. They've got it all figured out. But until I know that I need Jesus and I live in that reality, I will never experience the kingdom of heaven. So let us just rest and set in the fact that we all have a problem that we can't fix. That's one of the lies that Satan will tell you, no, you don't, you don't, you don't have that problem, that's other people. Here's the other thing. One, one extreme is that you don't need to be saved. 
Another extreme is that you can't be saved. You've done too much. Your rap sheet's too long. You failed that person, that person. You broke that promise and that promise. There's nothing. You can't get there. Listen, let's go back to Barabbas for a moment. Because if there's anybody who can't get freedom, who can't get saved, it's Barabbas. Okay, this guy has known in Matthew as the notorious prisoner. Now, anytime I think about notorious, I think of somebody like John Gotti, El Chapo, Guzman. I think of somebody who's got a, who's got a reputation out there, who's been locked up, and who, who, who you don't want to be a part of his prison cell because your life may be on the line. Well, evidently, Barabbas was that kind of guy. And he was a robber. He was also called a robber in John chapter 18. If you go on to Mark, he's, he's called um, a rebel in prison who had committed murder and an insurrection. Now, I just, I just because I nerd out on stuff like this every now and then, I just Googled the U.S. law code and researched if that was my rap sheet that I had committed robbery, armed robbery, probably murdered somebody in that robbery, and... I've committed a part of it, an insurrection. What would that get me? What would, what would be my, my punishment? If, uh, if I committed aggravated robbery, it's going to cost me 10 to 60 years, depending on, obviously, the court. An insurrection is going to cost me about 10 years in the lockup, plus fines. Murder, first-degree murder, is punishable by death or imprisonment for life. So if that is Barabbas living in 21st century America, he's going to be locked up for life or life plus 60. This guy's not getting out. And this is not the guy you want moving into your neighborhood. Okay? Now let me just reemphasize this. This is the guy that goes free because Jesus takes his place. This is the guy who's the guilty one who probably doesn't deserve it and he doesn't any more than you and I deserve it. But, but he gets freedom. He gets new life. He gets a, a second chance because of this, this loophole that they're going to let him go free. The chief priest stirred up the crowd. So he was like the instigator. The chief priest is feeding the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And all the crowd jumps in and jumps in on it and they get in on it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing we've got to understand, that as people, we can be good and better than the average Joe, or we can be a hardened criminal notorious for our crimes. But God's grace touches that person, and it touches this person, that we are never beyond the grace of God. Everyone needs the grace of God, the good person needs the grace of God, and everyone one, no one is beyond the grace of God. Can I get an amen to that? Because you're somewhere in, the, in that continuum. We need the grace of God. We need the work of God. We need somebody to step in our place because there, we're never going to be good enough and we're never going to be bad enough that God's grace can't touch us. Where sin is, the Bible says, grace abounds even more. Sin will always reach to the level of our sin. Our grace will always reach to the level of our sin. And you think about that, let that just set on you today, that we have a problem that we can't fix. So let me just say before I go any further, if you have never stepped into that grace of Jesus, 
the experience that grace of Jesus. Do not take another breath until you say yes to Jesus. And you start with the statement, Jesus, I got a real problem I can't fix. I need you to fix me, to give me a new life. Don't turn over a new leaf. Don't let me just be my escape. Don't let me be my, don't be my alibi. No, I need you, Jesus, to step in my place and fill in the gap and to, to, to rescue me from my brokenness. Which then, okay, so I have a problem I can't fix, but that leads me to the second reality. That reality is this. I have a Savior who's willing to switch. I can't fix myself, but I have a Savior who's willing to step in my, in my space. Now, I've got to talk about this because this is kind of getting into some deep theology, but hang with me on a moment because this will hopefully make the whole Bible make better sense to you. So will you give me the next five minutes to really expound on something here really important? Why in the world does someone have to die? Why all those animals, those lambs, those goats, those turtle doves, why do they have to die? Couldn't Jesus have taken some pixie dust and sprinkled it out and that would have fixed it? Couldn't God could have just waved a magic wand and it all been fixed? In God's order, in God's creation, all the way back to Adam and Eve, our mother and our father, it required the death and the blood of something, someone, something to cover the sins of the past. Go back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve living in a perfect garden, had everything handed to them. It was beautiful and awesome and wonderful, yet they became a little independent. They took fruit that they weren't supposed to take. They lived, a, they lived their own life. And anyway, you know the story. But what happens? They run and hide. God comes to them. When God finds them, he holds them accountable, okay? But he also does this. He kills an animal, and he covers them with that animal skin. Now, don't just read past that. That is the first death recorded in the Bible. And that first blood death required covered the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. And ever since that time in Genesis chapter 3, we have human beings chasing, needing a lamb to cover their sins, needing a lamb to save their life. Think about the Passover lamb, needing a lamb uh, uh, to, to make, that, that Isaac wouldn't be offered on an altar, need, need, needing a lamb that, that, that would take away the sins of the world, needing a on and on and on throughout the generations. In fact, in Leviticus, how many of y'all read Leviticus before you came this morning? Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, but there's some deep stuff in Leviticus. Listen to this. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make an atonement. So life is in blood. Blood is on the altar to make an atonement for blood is what makes an atonement for life. This is God setting up the sacrificial system. You go all the way through to the New Testament and they're making sacrifice after sacrifice to cover it, to cover the sins of the past, to cover the sins of the past. And I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm going to have to make more sacrifices. And all the all along, they can never make enough sacrifices. Hebrews 10.4 says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh-oh, Houston, we got a problem. We can't fix our problem with sin. 
with enough goats and enough bulls and enough turtle doves and enough anything else. Hebrews 10, 10. Read it together out loud as if you mean it. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus Christ paid the sacrifice fixed our problem that we couldn't fix because the Savior was willing to switch places with us. Barabbas goes free. Jesus goes to the cross. The guilty go free. The innocent go to the cross. This is a major switching of places, a major trading of places that happens here. In systematic theology, which is just a form of studying the Scriptures, from themes, so Genesis to Revelation, what, what systematic theologians have found is that what we call penal substitutionary atonement is what we're talking about here. A pen, penal punishment, substitution, somebody stood in our place, Jesus, atonement to pay for our sins. Jesus paid the price for us. What did that cover? What did that mean? Let me give you four imbalances of this because it's totally out of balance. It's totally unjust. Four imbalances that we're dealing with here. One is there's a final sacrifice. Jesus is the once and for all final and complete and ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 26. He appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus paid it. He was the final sacrifice. That's why we don't have an altar up here all bloody and messy. That's why we are believing in Jesus as that final ultimate sacrifice. But it's not only the final sacrifice. Jesus is appeasing propitiation. Now, that's a $5 word right there. How many of y'all have used propitiation in your sentences this past week? I'll give you a free cup of coffee at the cafe this next week, if you can find five times that you can use propitiation and you can even say it correctly. It's not exactly something. We don't propitiate for things, okay? But what happens in this is we got to realize something. Hang on to this. God hates, and if I had another word, I'd insert it, hates our sin. Hates it breaks his heart, wasn't what he designed us for. Now, does he love us? Yes. This whole story is about him loving us. And he's parsing out our sin and brokenness and shame and remorse that Judas tried to take care of himself. And he's setting us free, but he hates it. What Jesus does is he is the propitiation. He's the one who steps under the anger of God, under the holy indignation of God. He steps under that and all the weight of all the sin of all humanity falls on the soul and the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Not on you, not on me. My friends, we couldn't go without Jesus being. The thing is, is that what we do is we try to minimize sin so it's really not that big of a deal. And what God does is he maximizes it, says, no, it's a big deal. What we call an accident, God calls abomination. 
What we call a blunder, he calls blindness. What he calls a chance, he calls a choice. What, he, what we call a defect, he calls a disease. What we call an error, he calls enmity. What he calls fascination, he calls folly. What, he calls tri- what we call trifle, he calls tragedy. What we call weakness, he calls wickedness. We have a totally different perspective. And what Jesus does is he steps in and he is the propitiation of our sin. He takes the wrath of God. First John chapter, uh, chapter 2 says this, if anyone does sin, which is all of us, okay? Hopefully you realize that. If anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Okay, that's cool. Who is this? Jesus. What Jesus does is he's the advocate. He stands in our place. He stands in the gap. What does he do? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why do we believe missions is so important? Because there are people in this world who do not know about the propitiation that Jesus stood in the gap for them, was an advocate for them, and they need to know. It's not just for us. Jesus Christ is that. In Romans, it says that he's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive, be received by faith. He's reconciled. Now I want you to notice these words, reconciled and redemption. They're going to come back up here in just a moment. Be reconciled to God for, for his sake, that he made him to be sin. Jesus became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The title of this, of this message is Barabbas trading places. Jesus literally traded places. He took our guilt and shame and brokenness. We took his righteousness and innocence. This is huge. And when I say this, I mean, I, Jesus doesn't pardon our sins. Please hear me on this. You don't want to be pardoned. If you're pardoned for a crime you've committed, you know what? You're walking free, man, but you're still guilty. Somehow you got in the good graces of the judge or good graces of the president and you got pardoned and you're still walking the streets, but you are as guilty as the day you went into jail. Jesus didn't pardon us. He became the propitiation for us. He took our sin. He took our shame. It's huge. We're having a series come up in in a few weeks called Intentional Parenting. And guys, there's, there's so much about parenting that the scriptures can help us as parents and as grandparents. By the way, I'm grandparent. You heard that? I'll, I'll show you pictures afterwards or something like that. Uh, grandparents, big brothers, big sisters, aunts and uncles. This is, a, this is a series for everyone. You don't have to be in the parenting mode. You can just be a big brother or a big sister. You can, you can be an aunt and uncle. You can be that kind of aunt and uncle who can make a difference like mine made a difference in my life. But one of the things we do as a church is we don't raise your kids spiritually, you do. And I I love it when parents are working through the salvation of a child and they're kind of working it through, hey, I I need an outsider and we as church can step in and help walk with you as you walk with your kids to faith in Christ and that whole series is going to be about that. But when a parent will bring their child to me, and they're saying, hey, I, I think my child has given their life to Jesus, but I don't know. I want to make sure they understand what sin is. I go, okay, let's talk about it. And I give the example. I'll bring out a big old thick book like this. I'll say, this is my life. If this pa- every page in this book covered all the sins of my life, one, it would be a lot thicker. But this is, this is my life. 
and this is my relationship with God. We read Isaiah 59 verse 2. My sin separates me from God, hides his face from me. He doesn't hear me. This is God. This is Mike. God, Mike, sin in the middle. I can't get them together. I can't join them together. I can't pull this apart. There is a separation between God and I. What does Jesus do? Well, it says in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, here's God, excuse me, here's us, lays on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus takes it all so that I can be free, so that I can live, so that I can live free of the shame, the guilt, and the brokenness of life. Listen, when I say that Jesus took our place, it changes everything. Do you know him that way? Because it leads next to his a freeing redemption. There was just an oxymoron to say redemption, which means payment. Free means it's not costly. Listen, Jesus paid a price. He was the ransom, it says in Mark 10, 45 that paid the penalty for us. But also, and I close, he's the beautiful reconciler. He's the one that reconciles us back to God and then gives us the job in the ministry of reconciliation wherever we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says it like this, who through Christ reconciled us to himself through Christ. Again, you don't get that through baptism. You don't get that through church membership. You don't get that through shaking the preacher's hand. You get there through Christ. Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice all the reconciliations going on here. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We could have been held account, but God, Jesus takes on our trespasses and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. I have been reconciled. You have been reconciled if you're a child of God so that you have a ministry and a message of reconciliation. To take it out to your one and to share with them. I want to close with a story of, of, of our life when Lori and I lived in Africa for, and our kids lived in Africa. We did take our kids to Africa with us. Uh, lived in Africa for four years. And uh, we lived among the Tonga people of southern Zambia. And it was an incredible life experience. Our kids still look to that as kind of one of the epic seasons of their life. And when we lived there, we were missionaries that were taking the gospel to places that had never heard the gospel. And uh, there, was a, there was a town that came, a village, really it was a village, that came to our awareness. It's called Sinkwakwani. You'll not find it on a map. You might find Siempondo, which is the village just before that because there's a school there, but you won't find Siempondo. So we're told that the gospel has never gone to Siempondo. They don't know about Jesus. I remember loading up in my Land Rover, and I remember driving out there with my national partners, and I can remember going through And why, why people didn't go to this village is because at Siempondo, the village right before Siempondo, there was a sign in, right by the road that said, Beware of Landmines that were left over from the Rhodesian War of Independence. Now, I made the commitment that I'm going to stay on the well-worn paths because I figured there's no landmines on the well-worn paths. So we drove our little Land Rover, we made it back to seeing Kwakwani. I went there by myself the first time, and then we started taking our family. And I remember I'd never seen a white guy before. I came up and played with the hair on my hands, wrist, and we just started telling them stories 
Started with Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. Had to kill an animal to cover their sins. We moved on to Isaac. Going to be offered on an altar, but God provided a ram. We went on to the Passover story of Moses and, and the people of Israel and God saving the children by the, the shed blood of a lamb on the door face with a hyssop branch. We went on to Isaiah when Isaiah talks about all we like sheep. We just read that. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has turned on and laid on him the iniquity of us all. We just kept talking about every time there was a lamb, every time there was a sacrifice, and how this was what it was going to take for you to be in a relationship with God because our relationship is broken. And I'm talking about 40 to 50 women and children all sitting around a campfire at night. And I'm talking about over the course of about a six-month period that we're just telling the story and just adding on to the story week over week, month over month. And finally, I mean, I'm talking about the lamb. I'm talking about you need a lamb. You got to have a lamb. You got to sacrifice a lamb. And to be a Tonga woman in the village, you're beautiful if you have a bone in the nose and your two front teeth knocked out. It actually goes back to slavery. I'll save that story for another, another, another day. There's these ladies that are sitting on the front row. They're there every single time I tell a story. And one lady shoots up. And she said, I don't have a lamb. I need a lamb. It was right when I got to the story of John the Baptist, right when Jesus was walking up to be baptized, I mean, I couldn't have timed it any better. And what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that point, that lady... And about 15 others gave their life to Jesus. And to this day, there is a church in Siankokwani and the gospel's going out. Guys, that's beautiful. I say that to say, if you don't know Jesus as your Lamb of God who takes away the sin, you don't know Jesus. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral example. He's not just a healer. He's not just a crowd pleaser. He's Jesus who takes away our sin. If you don't know Jesus, I want to say this. The very first thing, the very next thing you need to do is you need to give your life to him. And then you need to tell the world because you've not only been reconciled to Jesus, but you have a ministry and you have a message of reconciliation. I will make it real clear. You need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus so that you can tell the world. A couple of weeks, we're going to have a baptism. So maybe you're here today. Maybe you're right now. You're ready to do that. Give your life to Jesus. Receive him as your ultimate final sacrifice, as your propitiation for your sin. Give yourself to him now. Father God, you know everybody in this room, we cannot hide from you. But God, why would we want to? Lord, if you're stirring in people's hearts right now to give themselves to you, Father, I just pray that they'd do that. I pray that they'd just say, Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, would you save me? Lord, thank you for living, loving, dying for me and coming back to life again. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that will not get over the fact that you, the innocent,
paid such a cruel, gruesome punishment so that I, us, we could go free. Without you being the substitute, without you trading places, we are people most miserable. Lord, we we bless you. We praise you in this space. We thank you. And I pray that, Lord, you would do your work right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.